Welcome back to the Der Show. There are some really interesting legal issues uh, these days uh, surrounding both the Biden administration and President Trump and, and, and Fox. Uh, the Supreme Court heard argument on the issue of whether President Biden had the power to uh, rescind um, um, uh, student loans and uh, to a certain degree. Um, and um, you know, I think it raises a very substantial issue about under our Constitution, who has the power to make decisions involving tax money. And the Constitution seems clear that uh, revenue bills, and this is a revenue uh, approach to, um, you know, to, to how money is allocated, taxpayer money, that all revenue bills must originate in the House of Representatives and has to be passed like a regular law uh, by a majority of the House, majority of the Senate, reconciliation, and then president either vetoes it or um, approves it or does nothing, in which case uh, it's, a, it's a pocket veto. In any event, um, the court will decide that. I think they will decide it probably against the Biden administration. Who knows? Uh, um, you never can predict Supreme Court decisions, but um, the movement is away from executive action, by the courts at least, and more toward legislative action. The same thing is true of administrative agencies. So we're seeing a trend and nobody knows for sure how this case will be decided. You never know until the votes are decided. Who knows? Maybe we'll find out tomorrow when somebody leaks the opinion or leaks the uh, the works of conference because they're going to be more leaks. And now that the Supreme Court has essentially given up on trying to find the leaker and the leaker is, you know, going to you know, very proudly look himself in the mirror and think, gee, you know, I may have, who knows, I might have had some impact. Maybe I could have stopped the decision overruling Roe versus Wade. If there's no implication, if there's no payback, if there's no um, accountability for a leak like this, we're going to see more leaks, not only from the Supreme Court, but from other institutions as well. And uh, it will hurt the credibility of these institutions and the cred credibility of the court. The other fascinating First Amendment issue now going on involves the uh, voting, vote counting machines. And I have to admit, I'm involved in some of that litigation. Um, my interest is in making sure voting machines are not subject to being hacked. I've never challenged a voting machine or in a particular election, but I just wanna make sure that if, if the government um, delegates important governmental functions, namely counting votes, what could be a more important government function than counting votes? We all remember the hanging chads being counted by these, you know, clerks in, in, in Palm Beach County and other places in Florida. That's generally a function performed by government, but now it's been allocated to a number of vote counting machine companies and the companies refuse to disclose how their machines work. They refuse to give up their business secrets. Now you can't have it both ways. You can't perform a government function and act like a private corporation that can conceal its business. If you're going to do the business of government, you have to be uh, completely transparent and you have to allow experts to examine your algorithms and your other um, you know, secrets about how uh, votes are counted to see whether they're hackable or, or what. I don't know whether they are or not. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert, um, but I do care deeply about uh, voting integrity. So uh, there are these lawsuits that are pending, but now there's this $1.6 billion lawsuit against uh, Fox being brought by one of these companies because uh, the company claims that uh, Fox uh, defamed them. I have a suit pending also against CNN where I claim, and there's just no doubt about it, that I was uh, defamed 
um, by um, CNN making up completely out of whole cloth the claim that I said a president, if he wants to get reelected, can do anything, even commit crimes. When I said exactly the opposite and they all knew that and they all knew that they were not telling uh, the truth about what I said. Not a single person at CNN actually believed that Alan Dershowitz would say that a president can commit any crime he wants as long as he wants to be reelected. Having heard my speech two days earlier where I said for a president to be impeached, he must commit criminal or criminal type behavior under the impeachment provisions, which talk about treason, which is a crime, bribery, which is a crime or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So I've always said that if a president commits uh, treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors, he can be impeached and removed. And yet uh, the CNN commentators, knowing that they were not telling uh, the truth, um, um, went on television and 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 had me saying the exact opposite of what me saying by doctoring the tape essentially and omitting the crucial words that I used, uh, you know, unlawful, corrupt, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I have an interest in, in, in the First Amendment. And I have an interest in these lawsuits. I believe the First Amendment gives you the right to be wrong, but not the right to be uh, deliberately wrong and maliciously wrong, not the right to make up stories when you know they're not true. And that, of course, is what is being claimed against uh, Fox as well. And, and now there's been some fascinating, you know, when you bring a lawsuit or when you're subject to a lawsuit, I'm long now experienced in this, um, you have to disclose everything and, and, and you're subject to depositions. I've been deposed now for days and days and days. Uh, fortunately, my case, my major case was settled when the woman who accused me admitted that she finally recognized that uh, she may have uh, mistaken me for somebody else, that it may have been a case of mistaken identification. But before I got to that, I had to disclose every phone call, every email, every, you name it. I had to turn it over. I had to pay an enormous amount of money to people to go and get all my emails and all my texts and everything. That's what happens. And so <clears throat> what's happened in this case is that um, Robert Murdoch, the head of Fox and the company that controls Fox, was deposed and put on the witness stand. And he admitted that he didn't think the election was stolen and that uh, there were people on Fox who didn't think the election was stolen. They thought that Biden had won the election fair and square. That doesn't mean that every single vote was properly counted. We know for a fact that Pennsylvania allowed voting beyond the time the legislature had authorized it and every vote cast beyond the day that the legislature authorized it was an unlawful vote, but there weren't enough of them to determine or change the outcome of the election. But, you know, the election wasn't perfect, but none are. No elections are ever perfect. Bush versus Gore, the epitome of an imperfect election with uh, an imperfect result. In any event, um, so um, Fox um, 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 commentators, um, primetime commentators and others um, gave voice to people who were saying the election was stolen. And um, the case raises the interesting question. We know that, I don't know, 20%, 30%, millions and millions of Americans thought the election was stolen. They were dead wrong. Uh, the election wasn't stolen. Uh, I believe that as a matter of fact, but I also believe in the right to disagree with me and to disagree with the president and to disagree with CNN. Um, and um, the question is whether Fox uh, was engaging in First Amendment protected activity 
when it put people like Rudy Giuliani and um, uh, other other lawyers who were making claims of stolen election, gave them a chance to express their views. Uh, uh, surely, uh, if those are views that are felt by you know millions of people in America, Fox not only has the right but probably the responsibility to put some of these people on um, to to hear their views and you know good television, good media would then criticize them or at least subject them to tough cross-examination and make them prove their case. Ultimately, they did. Ultimately, Fox said to um, the lawyers, uh, you claim you have evidence of widespread fraud. Prove it. Show us the evidence. And when they didn't show the evidence, they stopped putting them on on television. Um, And so, you know, the question is, what is the obligation of a, of a television station. By the way, it's different than social media. Social media has Section 230, so they can't be sued. But Fox doesn't have the benefit of Section 230. That's also now before the courts and is being challenged. But Fox doesn't have that. Fox is just like you and me and any newspaper. They can be sued for libel, defamation. Can you really defame a company? You know, that that's an interesting question. We know um, that companies do have First Amendment rights, the Supreme Court. Uh, erroneously, in my view, uh, held that um, in that case involving the film about uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the corporation is is suing, and uh, I don't know if they can prove they had damages as a result of it. Um, did they lose contracts? I don't know. $1.6 billion sounds <laughs> a little bit excessive, um, and I'd be interested in seeing what they can actually approve. But before we get to the issue of damages, you get to the issue of what is the role of a television station? You know, CNN, MSNBC have a point of view. Um, They will not point opposing points of view on. They have banned me and um, others. Um, I'm as good a legal commentator, I'm sure, as CNN has, but they don't want to hear my views because they're too balanced. Uh, They don't follow the CNN narrative. I don't follow anybody's narrative to their credit. Uh, Newsmax puts me on, even though I don't follow their narrative. I'm often uh, a critical of what they um, uh, say and, and what uh, what uh, what some of the anchors uh, may believe. I'm also sympathetic with some of the other anchors, uh, Greta Van Susteren, uh, and I tend to have sub- substantial agreement about many issues, but I don't have substantial agreement with some of the other uh, folks. And, and they criticize me. They put me on and they criticize me. Or I criticize them. Um, I remember once on Tucker Carlson, I was very critical of uh, his approach to immigration. And I remember once on uh, the Hannity show, I was critical of um, uh, some aspect of his relationship with his lawyer, uh, Cohen. Um, and, and, you know, that was fine. Um, television stations are supposed to present a diversity of views. Now, but what happens when it presents views that the people who present them don't actually agree with? Look, as a lawyer, I've made arguments uh, that I don't necessarily agree with. I'm an advocate. Um, uh, and I'm myself, I'm very law and order oriented. I want to lock up those bastards, uh, the ones who are guilty, but I'll defend them. Um, it's the judge's job and the prosecutor's job to lock them up. It's my job to defend them. I might be rooting for the prosecutor and the judge in some cases, if not consciously, unconsciously, because as I say, 
I'm tough. If I were a prosecutor, if I were a judge, I'd lock them away and, you know, throw away the key on some of these guys. And I would certainly go hard after uh, people who committed um, violence. And uh, but when I'm a lawyer, I have a job and my job is to defend my clients. I would never make an argument that I thought was unethical or or perjurious or misrepresented facts. But I will advocate for points of view that I don't necessarily agree with. When I used to teach at Harvard, I would ask my students to present an argument on one side of an issue, and then I'd ask them to switch sides and present the argument on the other side of the issue. That's what lawyers uh, do. Well, what about television stations? Do they do that? Um, uh, is a person entitled to go on the air, a, 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 um, a, a person who is uh, uh, an independent commentator and express views that he thinks should be expressed, but that he doesn't agree with? Or um, what about the host of the show? Can the host of the show, who realizes that his audience uh, is largely of a certain perspective, if it's MSNBC of a left-wing perspective, CNN of a left-wing perspective, Newsmax and Fox of a right-wing perspective, center-right, maybe, uh, who knows? Um, can you cater to your audience's views? <clears throat> or must you, <clears throat> excuse me, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? If you're on television, a television commentator is not sworn to tell the truth. He's <clears throat> an entertainer, excuse me. <clears throat> Tell you, getting old is no fun. It really takes a toll on your vocal cords and on everything else. But you know, you deal with it. Getting old better than the alternative. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be um, uh, pausing to get a, a glass of water occasionally and and presenting the rest of my ideas after that. So that's the issue that the Supreme Court will have to cope with, or some court will have to cope with. In the in the Fox case, if it gets beyond a, a, if it gets to trial, um, you know, in order to prevail, the vote counting machine company has to not only prove that um, what what they said was false, but that it was either knowingly false or in reckless disregard of the truth. Now, the fact that people didn't believe it, you know, is is relevant. But remember, the Supreme Court has held. Uh, in a decision by former Chief Justice Rehnquist, under the First Amendment, there's no such thing as a false idea. There's no such thing as a false opinion. There are such things as false facts. But uh, the line between facts and opinion are getting blurred a lot. Uh, the New York Times now puts opinions on the front page. Um, they call it news analysis, not news analysis. It's op-eds on the front page disguised as news but opinion. So the line between opinion and fact is clearly being blurred. And I have to tell you, I think that in the end, uh, Fox may very well win these uh, lawsuits, even though they might be subject to criticism for um, blurring the line between opinion and fact. But I think under the First Amendment, what was said by many of these commentators probably qualifies as opinion or something close to opinion. And we ought to err on the side of allowing opinions. The CNN case, the exact opposite. There were no opinions. People said, Alan Dershowitz said, unmistakably, unequivocally, Alan Dershowitz said that if the president wants to be reelected, 
He can commit any crimes. He can commit murder. He can, you know, you name it. He can commit extortion. He can commit any crime. They knew that that is a false fact. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. I use the words criminal, criminal-like behavior. I use the words treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. I use the word unlawful. I use the word corrupt. They edited those words out quite willfully and quite deliberately. That's not opinion. That's a misstatement of fact. And so, you know, my case is under advisement now. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens in the in the Fox case. But I think we're in for a decade of interesting challenges to the conventional views of the First Amendment. Uh, we have the 230, Section 230 case pending. We're going to have the Fox case. We're going to have my case. Um, we're going to have uh, other, other cases uh, involving uh, the extent of First Amendment protection. I think the Supreme Court is probably ready to reconsider uh, what malice means in the context of public uh, debate. I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court when New York Times versus Sullivan was decided, I helped uh, my co-law clerk, who was primarily responsible, but I helped my co-law clerk uh, draft the concurring opinion in that case. And uh, central to New York Times versus Sullivan was the concept of malice, uh, which doesn't mean, you know, thinking bad things about people. It has a legal definition, um, knowing or that something's false or saying it with reckless disregard for its truth or falsity. And so those will be the issues that are presented uh, in uh, my case and in the, in the Fox case. And uh, the answer of how the courts decided could have important implications for the First Amendment. I think many Americans now feel, shouldn't be the deciding factor of the First Amendment, but many Americans now feel that uh, too many media take too much liberty uh, with facts and report facts according to their own narrative. By the way, it, is, it isn't only true of television. It's absolutely true of the New York Times. It's absolutely uh, true of some other uh, uh, newspapers. It's not true of some newspapers. I mean, the Wall Street Journal really maintains a very strict separation between reporting and uh, editorializing. And generally, the, the news people, the reporters have no contact with the editorial uh, uh, writers and, and op-ed writers. I'm a frequent op-ed writer for the Wall Street Journal. I used to be a frequent op-ed writer from the New York Times, um, but their perspective has now uh, changed and they don't uh, generally get op-eds that uh, disagree with their narrative, whereas uh, the Wall Street Journal has op-eds that disagree with its narrative. I know because I'm one of them. I have had numerous op-eds published by the Wall Street Journal, which uh, disagree with uh, the editorial uh, page editors uh, on some issues. And so I think we're in the midst of a great debate about um, the media uh, opinion, facts, and uh, we're also in the midst of a tragic uh, uh, diminution of truth and principle in media reporting, uh, by all media virtually, not all, there are some exceptions, but many, many, many uh, media, um, including, for example, the Pulitzer Prize Committee. You know, it's so biased. Uh, I read a lot and I read a lot of, you know, Pulitzer Prize 
winning books. I have to tell you. Um, it, it, there's a formula for winning a Pulitzer Prize, and people know what it is, and they write for the formula. They write, they write, for, write for the prize. And, um, um, and, and that's true of, of all kinds of reporting and all kinds of literature. We, we, we live in an age today where uh, partisanship ideology uh, trumps truth, trumps principle in almost every aspect of life. And it's, it's a tragedy. And it's particularly a tragedy if you, as I try to pride myself on living by, by principle. Do I always succeed? Of course not. I'm a human being. But I try desperately not to allow my personal views to influence what I tell you, what I write about um, halfway through my 53rd book. And uh, I'm entitled to express my personal views in my book as distinguished from my classes where I never expressed uh, personal views. Um, but even when I write books and I express my personal views, I try to do it in a principled way. I try to do it with expressing views on both sides of the issue. And I challenge you when you read uh, my books to see whether I, I do that or not. This new book I have coming out called Get Trump, you know, I'm not a Trump supporter, but I am a civil liberties supporter. And I don't care whether or not it's the civil liberties of Donald Trump, or the civil liberties of uh, the Nazi party, the civil liberties of the Communist Party, the civil liberties of people I fundamentally disagree with. I'm going to defend their civil liberties. And you're not going to like it. You're going to like it when I'm defending the civil liberties of people you like. And you're not going to like it when I defend the civil liberties or the right to trial by jury of people you don't like. That's the job of a, a principled writer, a principled uh, professor, of a principled criminal lawyer. I, I hope I live by those principles. And, and if I don't, call me on it because I deserve to be called on it. So speaking of calling me on it, here are some letters which call me on it. What is your opinion of Scott Adams' syndication canceling him despite some of their consumer papers not canceling him? Further, given Scott's original comments, and his explanation on Hotep Jesus. So what are your comments? Look, I don't like canceling people um, based on opinions that are outside of what they do. Uh, this guy writes a great cartoon. I like it. Um, and and um, um, I would continue to have it. Uh, if he had racism in the cartoons, okay, that would be one thing. But whatever his private views are, I, I think they shouldn't be they shouldn't result in his being canceled. If you're going to have cancellation, it has to be based on one standard. Look what's going on in New York now. They're thinking about naming a street corner after Elijah Muhammad, the head of the Black Muslim movement, uh, uh, one of the worst bigots, anti-Semites, haters of white people, and he's going to be the role model that kids in Harlem look up to and say, oh my God, they named a street corner after Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, he may have been responsible for killing Malcolm X. He may have been responsible for uh, other murders and uh, for other uh, terrible things that happened. You know, he he may be a bigot. Yeah, but he's you know he's black, and 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 we won't allow white people to tell us who to honor and who not to honor. That's basically what was said by advocates of that. No, you can't do that. You can't have a double standard. If you're going to cancel people like Scott Adams, you can't be honoring people like Elijah Muhammad, who was an out-and-out -out racist and bigot. 
we need a single standard for everything and we're not getting it. And uh, so, you know, I can decide not to read uh, Scott Adams Dilbert cartoon. I will. In fact, if I get to see it, I'll, I'll read it. Um, and I can condemn him and I wouldn't invite him to a dinner party. And if I heard him make some of the statements he made, I would condemn them. But, uh, you know, once you start doing that, what happens to Raul Dahl? Raul Dahl was an out-and-out anti-Semite, uh, a, a terrible bigot in his personal in his personal life. His family had to apologize uh, for it. I knew his his wife. She used to come to uh, the vineyard, and she was embarrassed by his bigotry and anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean his great books, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, no anti-Semitism in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And so um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ban Raul Dahl and I, I wouldn't ban uh, Scott Adams. So that's my view on that. Um, OK, this is an interesting one. Remember, I, I talked a little bit about Jade Hoover and uh, the FBI. And as, as a kid, I, I really admired the FBI to imply Hoover was more inspiring a figure because he was uh, a more ethical FBI director than Comey, who I consider a startlingly and distastefully self-regarding man is utterly ridiculous. Who was a terrible person, blackmailed, spy, uh, operated almost entirely on self-propagation, a remarkable reflection of your own values. If you were sincerely holding up a man as a paragon of virtue, absurd. You're right, of course. Uh, I, I have exactly your views of J. Edgar Hoover. In fact, I wrote an article for the New Republic some years ago demanding that the name J. Edgar Hoover be taken off the FBI building. It should never have been put up on the first place. Hoover was an extortionist and uh, all the things you say he was. All I said was, as a kid, I didn't know that. When I was 12, 13 years old, I saw, you know, movies about glorifying the FBI and I fell for it. My teacher took us down to FBI headquarters and they gave us the shells of bullets that were used. They showed us, you know, great, great fingerprint labs. So I fell for it. But I agree with you. I think that um, J. Edgar Hoover was a terrible, terrible person, a terrible leader of the FBI. So please don't confuse uh, my childhood her heroic worship with my adult reality of uh, how terrible J. Edgar Hoover was. I, I agree with you completely. Uh, okay. Professor Dershowitz, could you list your favorite literary books and writers that shaped and impressed you? You mentioned you liked Dostoevsky once. Well, I have to start with when I enrolled in Brooklyn College, I was, um, I guess I was 16 when I graduated high school, 17 when I started college. And my first class was English literature with a professor named Babby Brook. And um, she started the class by, in a very kind of high-pitched uh, voice saying, I need to know my students, how many of you have read a hundred novels. A couple of kids raised their hand. How many? Fifty. A couple of kids raised their hand. How many? Twenty. And then she looked at me and she said, Mr. Dershowitz. She, she actually she called me Dearth of Wits. That was her name for me. Mr. Dearth of Wits. Um, uh, you didn't raise your hand? Was it because you read more than a hundred books? I had already been in class and I had, you know, been articulate and made, made some good points. Is it because you've read over a hundred? No, no. I said, I've never read a full novel. Well, how come you know so much about literature? I said, because I used to read classic comics. And I not only know what Ivanhoe did, I know what he looked like. 
because it's in the classic comic. So I was very self-educated and I had never read a novel. Once I got to college, I went crazy and read everything. And Dostoevsky was perhaps my favorite novelist, which raises the question of Roald Dahl. Dostoevsky was a vicious anti-Semite. He wrote an article. You could read it. You can go online. Just read Dostoevsky on the Jewish question. It was horrible. It could have been written by Hitler or Goebbels. Uh, but the brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment, the two of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. And I go back and I read them uh, from time to time. The same thing is true of Shakespeare. Uh, nobody uh, until Shakespeare had really explored the depth of the human soul. The greatness about Shakespeare is there are no completely evil characters. Uh, even Iago is not perfectly evil. He, he, his wife had been seduced by Othello. Um, obviously, Shylock, uh, if you prick us, do we not bleed, was designed to be a Jewish figure who was mocked. And, and, and Shakespeare probably shared the anti-Semitism of his age, but I still go back and read Shakespeare and, 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 and love it. Modern authors, I like Saul Bellow very much, and I like uh, Philip Roth. <clears throat> um, I like um, people who write about experiences that I can share. Um, and um, <clears throat> so I, I read a lot of uh, nonfiction. I read some fiction. Um, I enjoy reading and um, I enjoy writing. Actually, at this stage of my life, I probably write as much as I read. Uh, I'll probably spend four or five hours a day writing on a good day and maybe only an hour or two uh, reading. I write upstairs in my apartment. I'm in Florida now, so I read on the beach. And um, um, my wife reads much more than I do. And uh, I love it when she and I read the same book and we <laughs> disagree or when we watch the same film. I have to tell you, I can't stand watching uh, television. I cannot watch CNN. I cannot watch most of the uh, television uh, uh, networks for me. Uh, television, I you know see movies and uh, series, and there are some good ones, some not so good ones. And uh, for me, just a day at home, reading, walking, uh, spending a little time on the beach, having a nice glass of wine, and 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 spending time with my wife is the the pleasure of my life as I get older. So. I hope the good Lord gives me some more years to enjoy this part of my life. I'll see you guys tomorrow.